0: Well, good morning, guys. It's good to be with you on this Labor Day weekend. I want to start this morning by asking you two questions. How would you define true greatness? And how would you say the true greatness is achieved? I think in a culture like ours that so often rewards and celebrates things like status and power and wealth, it'd be hard not to think of greatness as the achievement of such things. But to define greatness as status and power and wealth can be spiritually dangerous. Because the desire ambition for such things is so often fueled by our sinful pride. Pride that causes us to lose sight of what true greatness really is. In fact, in the Bible, it was the allure of status and power fueled by sinful pride that led Satan to stand against God and fall from heaven. And in our country and culture, it's often the allure of status and power that leads, led by sinful pride, fueled by sinful pride, that leads so many of us to divide over issues both small and large. But... What we're going to find in our text today is that it's not status or power or wealth that leads to true greatness, but rather what leads to true greatness is humility and servanthood. Something else we're going to find is that it's not wrong to pursue greatness. Jesus doesn't forbid the desire or ambition to be great. He does, however, redefine what true greatness really is and redirect those that follow him their ambition to achieve it. Our text today has a lot to do with pride and humility, and there's a lot going on, but basically this passage can be broken down into three parts. In the first part, Matthew explains that as Jesus and his disciples are traveling towards Jerusalem, that Jesus stopped to predict the events of his coming death and resurrection for a third and final time. In the second part, this includes the story of how the mother of two of the disciples knelt before Jesus with her two sons uh, to make an incredibly prideful request. And the third part includes includes Jesus' response to this as he then redefines what true greatness really is and redirects his followers and how to achieve it. And so today we're gonna to cover these three parts of the story. And in doing so, we're gonna see the perils of pride, and we're gonna see a prescription for what true Greatness really is. We're also going to explore some practical application points. But before we begin, I just want to take a second to remind us that this is not, this is not just a, a history lesson of a story, or a story of a history lesson that happened 2,000 years ago. This is a true story about Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, greatness in the flesh, who, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. So I want to remind us that, that this is a true story that can truly change our lives. So let's begin by looking at it in verses 17 and 19, through 19. Matthew tells us, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, always going up to Jerusalem in the scripture, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and be raised again on the third day. So, in the first part of this passage, we see the prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's actually done this twice before, but this third and final time is far more detailed. As this story is told in Matthew and Mark and Luke, we can pull details from all three. And what these gospel writers tell us is that Jesus was walking out ahead of his disciples. What this means is that nobody was forcing him. And being that this was the, the last leg of his journey and ministry, uh, and being that this was also the, also the time of Passover, as he was on a mission, his eyes were set on Jerusalem with the cross in his sights. On the way, however, the gospel writers tell us that although Jesus, Jesus knew where he was going and what he was going to do, that the disciples didn't. And so being that the disciples were both amazed and afraid, Jesus then stopped to explain what was to come. And once again, he was very specific. His third and final prediction of his coming death is the first time that Jesus specifically mentioned the crucifixion. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But I want to point out that the, the prediction that Jesus is making here is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. All right? You may recall from the book of Genesis that when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, that God sacrificed an animal to cover them. And this was, of course, symbolic of the need... For the sins of man to be covered by sacrifice. And from then on, we see this sacrificial system applied all throughout the Old Testament. This is the scarlet thread of Scripture, as many people call it. Meaning that the entirety of the sacrificial system that's found in the Old Testament points to God's anointed son, Jesus, as the only one able to die and atone for or cover the sins of humanity. And this is why Luke adds in his account of this story that Jesus told the disciples that they were going to Jerusalem. So that everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And so the fact that Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem at this exact moment in history, it's no accident. It had already been written. It had already been prophesied. And so what we see here is that God sovereignly orchestrated these events, the culmination of these events, to happen at this exact moment in time. But at this point, we're we're told that the disciples still didn't get it. In fact, Luke also tells us that as clear as this statement by Jesus was, this prediction by Jesus was, that the the disciples still did not understand. They simply could not comprehend that this miracle worker that they'd been following was going to suffer and die. As one commentator puts it, the disciples knew they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with Jesus, but they had not connected the dots that Jesus was himself the Passover lamb the Lamb of God to be sacrificed to cover the sins of man. But if I'm honest, I can kind of see why they missed it. See, this story shortly follows the story of the rich young man, a ruler that Shu covered a couple weeks ago. This is the story where Jesus explained to a young man that was caught up in his own self-righteousness that the way for this specific man to find salvation was to sell all of his possessions, and they were many, and follow him. And if he did, that he would have treasure in heaven. But as we know, the young man walked away sorrowful. But what I want to point out is what Peter said after this account. I want to recall what Peter asked Jesus. Trent mentioned this last Sunday as well. But in Matthew 19 27, Peter said this We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? See, the disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. And so, although Peter's tone and attitude can be questioned here, what he's basically asking Jesus after the rich man walked away was, hey, well, then what's in it for us? To which Jesus then explained rewards in heaven to those that follow him, and specifically that the 12 disciples would sit on 12 thrones in heaven, judging the tribes of Israel. I bring that up because contextually this allows for the idea that hearing of their their coming status in heaven, that they didn't really like all this talk that Jesus was talking about with this coming suffering and sacrifice because what would that mean for them? I mean, they'd also heard Jesus say that they should be willing to endure the same kinds of things as he did. So the reason that I can understand how they may have missed the point here is because I think we can all agree that it's a lot more fun to think about status and power than it is to think about suffering and sacrifice. But regardless, as Matthew and Mark give us no indication of a response, we can gather that the disciples did not pursue the subject of what was to come. They did, however, in the second part of this story, pursue the subject of their own interest. If you look with me in verses 20 and 21, it says, then that Matthew tells us, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So, friends, this bold request that's made in this passage, it's very clear. What these two disciples desired was greatness. That's what they desired, greatness. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the expression, it's not what you know, but it's who you know. Well, this is a great example of that expression because Jesus' disciples, uh, they, they knew Jesus, Right? And so their mother is trying to take advantage of the fact that, that they were so close to Jesus and that she knew him as well to, to try to use the who-you-know idea to obtain their future position of greatness. Keep in mind here, they're not asking for faith to endure his coming suffering. They're not asking how they can support him in his coming suffering. What are they asking for? They're asking for greatness, their own And in a culture that defined greatness as status and power, just like ours ours does, that's what they were asking for, status and power. Now, On the surface, it may seem that this this second part of the story is, is an awkward transition from the prediction that was just made by Jesus. But I want to tell you that after studying this passage, I now think this connects very well. See, in the first part of this story, Jesus revealed that he was about to perform the ultimate act of humility and servanthood ever known. And now we see in the second part of the story that humility and servanthood were the last things on the disciples' mind. And the reason for this is pride. And so what we see in the second part of the story is the peril of pride. And friends, pride is dangerous to the Christian life because pride, as many have noted, is the root of all sin. In fact, C.S. Lewis once referred to pride as the great sin. He said it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. And that's certainly what we see here with these two disciples is this. Uh, they're acting in an anti-God state of mind. They'd walked with Jesus. They'd been discipled by Jesus. They'd heard the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus taught them that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But their sinful pride had distracted them from this. Now, on one hand, the argument can be made that, that this request was Positive. Because they clearly understood and believed that Jesus was about to come into his kingdom. That's a good thing. The negative, however, is, is that they were not concerned as concerned with the kingdom of God as they were with their own kingdom. And this is the danger or peril of pride. Pride, as C.J. Mahaney defines it, is this. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. Mahaney further says, Pride takes innumerable forms, but has only one end self glorification. That's the motive and ultimate purpose of pride, to rob God of legitimate glory and to pursue self glorification. This is the reason that the Bible says that God opposes the proud. It's the reason that the Bible says that pride goes before destruction, because pride seeks to rob God of something that only he is worthy to receive. And just in case any of us think this may not apply to us, I want to remind us that it's pride that leads so many of us to ask the same question that Peter asks. How often do we ask, what's in it for us? What's in it for me? It's pride that leads so many of us to lose sight of the reality that following Jesus is not about us, but it's about him. It's pride that leads so many of us to pray in an anti-God state of mind and live accordingly. And it's pride that leads so many of us to focus more on building our own status and kingdom than building the kingdom of God. And we all fall into this thinking from time to time. There's no way around it. Even if you're here this morning, you're thinking, this doesn't really apply to me. And that's self-righteous and prideful. Like all of us are impacted by this. The reason for this, as Mahaney said, is pride takes innumerable forms. And so my encouragement to us all today is to allow this passage to remind us that our status is not the point. Our status is not the point. The point is Jesus, and we're going to see this in the next few verses. Let's look in verse 22 to see how Jesus responds. Matthew tells us that Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they said to him, We're able. Now the word you, you, you that's used in this passage is plural, which indicates that he's speaking directly to James and John. It's kind of like, it's almost like he's a tone of pity and he's kind of looking over the mother and looking at James and John and saying, you guys have no idea what you're asking because if you, if you knew what you were asking, you would know that whoever sits at the right hand and left hand in heaven is first going to encounter suffering and sacrifice, not self-glory or status, And this is why Jesus asked them if they could drink the cup. Because the cup that Jesus is referring to is the wrath of God. There's a children's book that I've enjoyed reading to my kids over the years titled The Prince's Poison Cup by R.C. Sproul. I highly recommend it for those of you guys who have kids in the home. This book explains or tells the story of a young prince of peace that in order to redeem the people of his kingdom was asked by his father to drink a cup of poison filled with wrath. It's a story that points to the cup of wrath referred to by Jesus in this passage. And also, once again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he says, but not my will, yours be done. See, the Bible tells us that God is a loving father, but he is also a wrathful judge. That he hates sin. This means that apart from Christ, all of us are guilty of sin and objects of his wrath. And this is the reason that the gospel is such good news. Such good news. Because Jesus came is what the Bible refers to as a propit- propitiation for our sins. It's a big word that I have a hard time pronouncing this morning, but I'll explain. That what it basically means is, is when Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath through his sacrifice on the cross, that he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, and in doing so, changed God's wrath towards us into God's favor towards us it's the good news of the gospel and so jesus being the prince of peace and knowing that drinking the cup was the only way to satisfy the wrath of his father asked them if they could drink this cup as well and in their pride they said yes to which jesus answered that they would indeed drink his cup and in many ways they would guys they both would eventually suffer greatly for their belief in him. In fact, James was the first disciple to be martyred, and John ended his long life in exile on the island of Patmos. But of course, at this point, these two weren't thinking that way. Fueled by their allure for status, they made the claim that they could drink it. I love what one commentator says about this. He says, It's like they were saying, out of all the people that have ever lived Jesus, we want to be placed at the two highest seats of honor in heaven of all the people that have ever lived. That's what we're asking you for. To which Jesus says that it was not his place to grant them this wish as the Father had already prepared those seats. Which, of course, points to the sovereignty of God and the culmination of this plan that I mentioned earlier. But how do you think the other, two, the other disciples, the other 10 disciples, took to hearing this request? I mean, these guys are over on the side. They're kind of listening in. They're watching what's going on here. How do you think they responded to this? As you can imagine, not very well. Right? Verse 24 tells us, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And if you ask me, guys, that's kind of an understatement. Probably an understatement. I mean, of course they were mad, and I think that we would be as well. Uh, anyone ever had a coworker or friend uh, try to cut around you or jump ahead of you in the corporate ladder? Uh, imagine you're at work one day and uh, you're, you're walking by and you overhear one of your coworkers or friends, uh, maybe in the boss's office. And you try not to listen in at first, but then you start to pick up on the fact that they, this person is lobbying or positioning themselves ahead of you uh, in that corporate ladder. You think that would frustrate you? You think that would upset you? Yeah, of course it would. But I want to quote C.S. Lewis here again as he also said this about pride, and I think this should get our attention. Lewis said that the point about pride is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. The pride is competitive by its very nature. He also said that there's no fault which makes man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, meaning the more pride we have in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Ouch. So the next time we overhear a coworker try to lobby or position themselves ahead of us in the corporate ladder, we might consider this, that our anger in those moments is likely fueled by our own pride, as it is seen here in the anger of the other ten. The same pride that we'll see them display again at the Last Supper when they begin to argue again about who's to be regarded as the greatest. But thankfully, guys, in this story, we see that Jesus is merciful. Aware of the pride in James and John, aware of the pride in the other ten as they're indignant, Jesus, in the third part of the story, then called them all over to redefine what true greatness really is and redirect their ambition to achieve it. Take a look at what he says in verses 25 and 26. Matthew tells us that Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. So I want to point out that Jesus referring to the Gentiles was a reference to the Roman rule that the disciples had been suffering under. The Roman rule that had lorded their power over the disciples. In other words, Jesus is reminding them of what it's like to be under the worldly power or greatness of the Romans. And in doing so, he's calling them to examine their own desire, to rule over others. He's calling out their own desire for status or power or greatness. Their prideful hearts that had lured them to desire what the world defines as greatness. He knows their desire to be great, and he's not saying that that desire is wrong. He just redirects them. It's like, he says, you want to be great. I know you do. I know that. But you have the wrong idea of what true greatness is. And so Jesus redirects them by, redirects them by contrasting the world's definition of greatness or the Roman rule with what true greatness is. Did you catch what he said? He said, it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. I love that John MacArthur once said that in this passage Jesus turned the world's greatness upside down. Upside down because in this passage Jesus was speaking of an entirely different kind of greatness than what James and John were seeking and what the world promotes. The kind of greatness that Jesus speaks of in this passage it's it's not proud. It's not self-serving. It doesn't rule over as the Gentiles or Romans do. It's humble. It's self-giving. In other words, the prescription for greatness is humility and servanthood. That's the prescription, humility and servanthood. The Greek word that's used for servant here in verse 26, it's actually the same word that's used for deacon. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that's used to describe one who's willing to do kind of menial tasks or uh, labor such as housework or serving tables. Okay, it's not necessarily a word of dishonor, but a word to describe humble servanthood. You may have heard us refer to deacons in our church before from time to time. And when we do, we talk about those that are humbly serving our church. Those that are willing to serve not for their own sake or glory, but for the sake of others and the glory of Christ. And so, according to Jesus, this is what true greatness looks like. Humility and servanthood. And so you may have noticed that Jesus then reiterates his servanthood statement in verse 27 by saying, And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Oh, okay. He talked about servanthood. Now he's talking about slavery. Why does he add that? Because this is a lower and more demeaning term than that of servant. Why would he do this? Well, twice in recent passages, we've seen Jesus say that in his kingdom, the last will be first and the first will be last. And so here he takes the same idea, and he says that whoever wants to be great may, must make himself a slave to others. This is why Jesus turned the world's greatness upside down in this passage. Because the language of servants and slaves used by Christ in this passage is so different than, than what most of his listeners and us are used to or picture when we think of greatness. The difference in our culture, I think, couldn't be more stark. Because even if we're okay with servanthood, I doubt that any of us are okay with the idea of slavery. I mean, a servant at least has the freedom to go where he or she wants to go, but a slave... A slave is bound to his or her master, always attending their master's needs above their own. But that's the word that's used here. And so before you check out on me, I want to I help make the connection that the reason that Jesus says that those that desire true greatness should act as servants and slaves to others is because Jesus first came as a servant and slave for us. He came to serve, and not just as our example, very important, but as our ransom. Which is what he refers to in verse 28. He says, "Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many." Guys, there's a few times, a handful of times, in the Scripture that Jesus gives specific reasons for why He came. On one occasion, he says he came to seek and save the lost. You may be familiar with that. On another occasion, he says that they may have life and have it abundantly. But here he says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I want to spend a few minutes on that word ransom because it is so important. You might be thinking uh, about about ransom, right? You might have something in your mind uh, because of the movies you've seen and the books you've read uh, that a ransom uh, is something that is often... Uh, in movies, that are dealing with hostage situations, right? Somebody pays a ransom price uh, to redeem or to save a hostage, somebody who's in slavery. But in this text, it's a work that, word that was commonly used to describe the redemption price of a slave. So why does Jesus say that he would give his life as a ransom for many? Because well, earlier I explained the cup of wrath that Jesus referred to or spoke up to James and John. And I explained that the Bible tells us that God is a loving father, but he's also a wrathful judge thankfully, as I also explained, Jesus came to drink the cup of wrath on our behalf to save us from our sin. By doing so, this verse explains that he paid the ransom price for our freedom, that he paid it with his life. But let me just ask you a question. Hey, who did Jesus pay this ransom price to? Who did he pay it to? Do you know? I think because a lot of the movies that we've seen with hostage situations that a lot of us have in our minds that Jesus paid the price to Satan because Satan's the obvious bad guy. And in those movies, I mean, you pay a ransom price to bad guys. But guys, in this story, that's not true. The answer is that Jesus died to ransom his people from the wrath of the Father upon their sin. This is one of the chief reasons that Jesus came. And this is where the three parts of our passage come full circle. You guys remember the prediction that Jesus made of his coming and death and resurrection. Well, here Jesus is connecting the dots as he speaks of his life being a ransom. In other words, his prediction of his coming death is also the prescription for true greatness as his coming death is the ultimate act of humble servanthood. It was to this that John's gospel tells us, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Guys, you know know which John wrote that? You know which John wrote that? It's the same John that kneeled with James and asked to sit at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus in his coming kingdom. That's the same guy. The same guy that previously sought his own status in this story is the same guy who later celebrates suffering and servanthood, laying down one's life for another. What changed? What changed in this man's life? Everything changed. Everything changed after these prideful men witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus. And everything can change for us as well. And so how do we respond? Well, guys, if you'll notice, Jesus said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Did he say all? No. He said many. Because what this means is that although his death was more than sufficient to pay the ransom of sin for all, it's valid only for those that believe and trust in him. So our first act in response to this teaching should be to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, you don't know what that means or how to do that. The Bible says if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we'll be saved. And so if you're here today and you've never thought deeply about the fact that your sins separate you from God and makes you an object of wrath, then I wanna encourage you to place your faith and trust in Jesus today. Guys, confess it with your mouth because he's the only one that could drink the cup and he's the only one that could pay your ransom. This again is the good news of the gospel. So may we first respond to this good news with our faith. Secondly, may we seek to serve. When we've appointed deacons in our church in the past, I've tried to make the point that deacons don't wait for responsibility to be handed to them, but they seek it out. They actively look for those opportunities opportunities to serve and sacrifice for the sake of others, not for their own sake or glory or status, but for the sake of others and the glory of God. As we learn in this passage, this is not just a call for one that holds a title of deacon in a church. This is for anyone and everyone who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Remember, it's not wrong to seek greatness. It's not wrong. God knows that we're gonna do that. But true greatness is only achieved through humble servanthood. And so as followers of Christ, we should humbly seek out opportunities to serve. We shouldn't wait to be asked. We should seek them out. We have all kinds of opportunities in the church. In fact, our children's ministry, setup team, loadout team, we're in need of servants right now. <clears throat> when I thought about this, I started to say, they're in need of help right now, but I didn't. They're not in need of help. They're in need of servants right now. Those who are willing to step in Seek out opportunities to serve for the sake of others. That's what they're in need of. So I want to encourage you not to be, wait to be, to, to be asked, but to intentionally seek out those opportunities. But Jesus didn't come to be served. And he didn't die because he needed slave labor. He came to serve us and he died to ransom us from our sins. Our response to that should simply be to serve as he did. There's all kinds of opportunities in the home and workplace as well. So I ask you, husbands, how are you serving your wives? And wives, how are you serving your husbands? What about employers? How are you seeking to serve those that are in your workplace, your employees? Or how are you as employees seeking to serve your employers? Not waiting to be asked, but seeking out opportunities. Friends, these are are some of the most important ways that we can daily represent Christ to others, and I think that... These are some of the most commonly, looked over, commonly overlooked areas to serve, right there in front of us all the time. What about those difficult and demanding people in our life? How are we serving them? Have we thought about the fact that how we treat them says something about our understanding of how we've been treated by Christ? I love what Mark Dever says about this. He says, do we ever stop to consider that God considers us difficult and demanding? Thankfully, he serves us when we're difficult and demanding. Third third way we respond is by living among Christian community. I told the other elders that I decided to add this action item because I think that we can all agree that isolation leads us to drift. And in isolation, the allure for worldly greatness through status and power, it can seep in very quickly. Our pride can settle in and we become distracted just like James and John were. And so we need, we need other believers in our lives that are willing to call us out on this, to remind us of what true greatness really is. Call us back when we begin to drift from that greatness, when they begin to recognize that we're seeking our own status or power, maybe getting sucked into that trap, to spur us on to love and good deeds, as the Bible says. I just want to say there are some of you that are members of this church that have drifted from your community group. If this is you, then I just want to issue some pastoral admonishment here, and I want to say that you're in danger of this, danger of drifting. If this is you, I want to put the challenge on you to seek out community. Don't wait to be asked. Seek it out. If you've drifted from your community group, you've gotten too far away, it feels awkward to try to re-engage with that group. We have a connection group that meets here almost every Sunday during this 11 o'clock hour. It's open. It's open to new people connecting to that group every week. We have another one. We have this one that's about to finish up. We have another new one that's going to start on October 10th. So if you're a member and you've drifted from your community group, that's a great place to start out. If you're here for the first time, you're new to Crosspoint, if you just joined Crosspoint, and you're looking to connect in Christian community, that's where I would point you. So you have the opportunity in front of you. Seek it out. Don't wait. Seek that out. Finally, guys, We pray. We pray, we respond through prayer. Not just praying for the things that we want, but praying about how we can be available. Praying for God to open our eyes to the service opportunities in front of us. Praying for God to grant us the courage to lean in when we see them. It's a sweet little book of Puritan prayers called The Valley of Vision that I've quoted from the stage often. Love it, highly recommend it. In this book, the Puritans prayed that God would let them learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. So my hope and prayer today is that we would pray in this way. That we would follow the prescription of Jesus to humbly serve others for his namesake. Remember, Jesus didn't forbid the desire or ambition to be great. He knows that we're going to pursue to be great. He did, however, redefine what true greatness really is. And to those that follow him, he redirects our ambition to achieve it. And so we should pursue greatness. Hear me say that today. We should pursue greatness, just not the way that the world defines it. So may we as Christians be humble servants. As let may pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word today that reminds us that it's not wrong for us to pursue greatness, that you've wired us that way. We got thank you for your word today that defines what true greatness really is and redirects our hearts on how we achieve it. So God, I pray that your word would do what it does and change our hearts, not just today as we're sting in the service, but tomorrow and the next day and throughout the week that you would remind us through the conviction of your word and spirit and God's people of what true greatness really is, serving others. Not so that we can be seen and therefore receiving feedback on how great we are, but so that Especially when we're, when we're not seen. Because we know that you receive the glory for that. So God, may we look for those opportunities. May you help us be available. May you give us the courage to lean in when we recognize, that, recognize those opportunities. Not in hindsight thinking, oh, I should have done that. But God, in the moment, help us to recognize those opportunities to step in. God, for those that are in this room that, are, that have not responded in faith to you, I pray that, You would use today to draw them near and use today as an opportunity for them to confess with their mouth that you're Lord. God, for those that are here today that are not connected to Christian community, Father, I pray that you would give them the courage to take that step towards it. God, whatever that looks like. God, I just pray that you would help us to be a people that pray far more about what you want in our lives and what we want. It's in Jesus' name, amen.